All right, well, if you've been with us these last few weeks, you know that we have um, been looking carefully at what the Scriptures teach about marriage. Uh, we've seen that marriage is uh, fundamentally what? A friendship, right. It's fundamentally a friendship. It's a companionship where husband and wife know and value each other very deeply. A husband and wife work together in this friendship, right? There's a mission. Uh, they work together in this friendship in ways that complement one another uh, for the advancement of this mission of God. And last week, we looked uh, at that mission for quite a long time. I'll try to uh, not go quite so long this time, if I value my job. Uh, well, tonight, we're going to get back to Ephesians, finally. And uh, hopefully, now that we've set the Bible's framework for marriage, Paul's instructions to wives and husbands will just sort of fall into place for us. There'll be less baggage, um, and we'll see how it, it's, it fits in with uh, the Bible's sort of macro message on marriage. And tonight, we're going to look specifically at what Paul says to the wives. So if you want to go ahead and turn to Ephesians 5, that's where we will be, if you're not already there. And we really need to lean in anytime we hear God's Word, but um, especially in these, these next few messages when it comes to the roles in marriage, because a lot is at stake. Confusion is rampant in the church, and in particular in your generation. And as I see it, uh, I, I see sort of two fundamental errors that we want to avoid when we're coming into uh, this. The, we're trying to think through these issues, or we're trying to think through what Paul's about to say um, to wives in particular and to husbands as well. But on the far left side of the spectrum, if you want to think about it as a spectrum, on the far left side, we want to avoid erasing the God-given roles in marriage. We want to avoid erasing them or ignoring them, meaning we don't want to pretend that the Bible doesn't give us clearly defined roles within marriage. Sometimes, uh, I think, in reaction to the abuses of the roles, people pendulum away from the God-given roles, and they claim that gender roles within a marriage are the result of the fall. We looked at that a couple weeks ago. They're not pre-fall, they're a result of the fall, they say things like, God never intended there to be any kind of hierarchy in marriage. In Christ, then, the roles of marriage are now gone because we're part of the new creation. They no longer apply to us today in the new covenant. Paul commands, Paul's commands in these te texts like these were dependent on the cultural norms of the day. And they're no longer binding on us in Western society. And I think that's one side of the spectrum. I think that's the far left side, and that's represented um, in evangelicalism as egalitarianism. That's the big word. Egalitarianism. It means that men and women are not only S equal in um, essence, which we would say amen, yes and amen. We're both made in the image of God. They're equal in essence, but they're also equal in function. So there are no roles in a marriage. And I just bought a book that's over 500 pages, from an evangelical perspective of no gender roles, or no, uh, no functional roles in a marriage. It's called complementary, or the, the, the subtitle is Complementary Without Hierarchy. And uh, sounds good, but I, I think it's, I think it's um, twisting scripture. So that's one side of the spectrum. On the, on the other side, 
the far right side of the spectrum, we want to avoid abusing the roles. We want to avoid abusing them or, or twisting this teaching that Paul gives us to make it go far beyond what Paul actually said. And this happens when insecure and twisted men use the Bible to domineer over their wives. And they use the Bible to order them around like slaves, testing their obedience by telling them to do ridiculous things, or they micromanage their lives or treat them like children. And as we're going to see, especially as we get into Paul's commands for the husbands, this is a perversion of what Paul says here. So those are the two sides of the ditches that we want to avoid. And as, as Christ shepherds here at Timberlake, we're really concerned that you see these issues clearly because confusion and deception really abounds in, on, in these areas. And we realize that if you misunderstand God's design of marriage, not only will you be confused, but you're, you're going to be, uh, it's, it's going to be bad for you. It's going to be to your detriment. Because husbands, they won't leave, lead with this self-sacrificing conviction, and wives won't have the opportunity to flourish under that wise and, and Christ-like leadership. And not only will it hurt the marriages, it will detract from the very glory that God intends to display right now in this fallen creation through the families of the church. It takes away from the glory of God that He intends right now in this age through the church. You may say, what, Clay? Like, wow, that's a, that's a lot. I have egalitarian family members and friends. Uh, are you talking about detracting from God's glory? Is it that big a deal? Aren't you overstating this a little bit? Like, is, is the glory of God actually riding on my understanding and implementation of the roles in my future marriage? Well, if God ordains that for you. Well, yes, I think that it is. I think if Paul were with us today, he would say that this is exactly why he wrote the letter of Ephesians in the way he wrote it. Okay? I think if you're with us today, I think you would say, this is precisely why I wrote the, the letter in the structure and the way that I laid it out. Remember the structure. Uh, Rich alluded to this a minute ago, but the, the first three chapters of this letter, Paul wants us to see the great glory of what God has done for us in Christ. He's chosen us from before the foundation of time, chapter 1. He's raised us from the dead and forgiven us of our sins and unified us together in a new humanity, chapter 2. We're people of his new creation. And do you remember the culmination of this description at the end of chapter 2? Do you remember what that was? We're his end time temple, right? Yeah, it's a pop quiz. Okay, end time temple. Just think, culmination, temple, all right, uh, in Ephesians, at the, at the end of chapter 2. And, and the, reason that that's, the reason that it's going that way is, is he, Paul wants us to realize that as the church, we are the radiance of his glory, and, and we, we are the very visible and tangible expression of his presence on earth right now through our local churches. We are the fulfillment, in other words, of the prophecies in the Old Testament that predict that God's going to rebuild His temple in the last days. And that's us. 
We, in other words, as crazy as it sounds, we are the display of God's wisdom and His glory to the world around us. And that was Ephesians 3. Through the church, verse 10 of Ephesians 3, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. And then he he prays for this church, and he says to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, the end of chapter 3, throughout all generations, forever and ever, amen. So, the imagery that he's building off of is the, the end-time temple. And then the, the, the back half of the letter then pivots to how we practically then reflect this glory now. In this, in this new temple. There's a lot of building language in chapter 4, and that's intentional because we're building up the edification language. We're building up the new temple. So how, how does this happen? Well, we, we progressively come to imitate God more and more. That's, that's the idea here in chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So we imitate him. And we, we grow to imitate him more and more. Our pastors equip us. We renew our minds individually and together corporately. And we begin to resemble Jesus Christ. We do. Like, through the power of His Spirit. That's, that's, that's who we are. We reverberate the truth in our churches as we learn to speak truthfully to each other. We forgive. We, we work hard so that we can be generous. We build each other up with our speech. We get rid of all of our sexual sin. And again, in chapter 5, it's like there's another culmination. Okay? In chapter 2, it's the new temple. And in chapter 5, it culminates again in a command, and this command has to do with us being the temple. In chapter 5, verse 18, Paul tells us to be filled with the Spirit. To be filled with the Spirit. Now, we've taught this already, but just kind of take all the crazy things you've thought, heard of when you, when you hear that verse and kind of set it aside. And what he means is that Paul is saying we should be characterized by the Spirit in our churches. This is a corporate command. Our lives should resemble Christ as the Spirit works in and among us to produce His fruit in our, in our midst. And the language of Spirit filling or being filled with the Spirit reminds us again of that temple in the Old, the old Covenant. That first temple, when God's Spirit filled the temple, filling it with His Shekinah glory. And that's exactly the connection Paul wants us to make at the end of, or yeah, kind of at the, in the middle of chapter 5 there. Hang with me, all right? In the, in the following verses then, he spells out how the Spirit fills the church. This happens in verse 19, chapter 5, as we address one another with truth in songs that we sing. Next, in verse 20, as we cultivate constant thankfulness for everything that God's done for us. And then key in, because here's our transition, and the Spirit fills the church as we submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Look in verse 21. Submitting to one another 
out of reverence for Christ. And there's a participle there, and that participle, submitting, you see the ing, is grammatically connected to the main command of being filled with the Spirit in verse 18. So, let me pull all that together for you. Paul says that the Spirit's presence among us is demonstrated in part as we submit to each other. In other words, God's temple, the church, is filled with His glory as believers in the church voluntarily arrange themselves under the leadership of other believers in the church. That's the idea of submission, as we're going to see in just a second. But, okay, so submitting to one another out of reverence to Christ. What exactly is he saying here? What does this mean? Well, some argue that Paul's teaching this mutual submission in this verse. Remember those egalitarians I told you about? Not even all egalitarians teach this. Some complementarians teach this, but they caveat it. Um, They teach mutual submission. They say that submission here has the idea of of showing preference to each other, like Philippians 2 commands. Right? You remember familiar with Philippians 2? We consider one another's needs more important than our own. And they say that's, that's the same idea here. That's what this mutual submission means. And that's definitely a biblical concept. But the only problem is, that's not what this word means. They just made this word mean something different. This submit word. Every time this word is used in all the literature that we have, it's used of one person arranging, or a group of people, arranging themselves underneath the leadership of another person or group of people. Every time. In other words, it's, it's not mutual, okay? So, it's just, if that's kind of hard to understand, okay, think about it like this. They were killing one another. Is that mutual killing? Now, that's one group of people killing another group of people, right? <laughs> so, that's kind of the idea. Just because it's, something's happening to one another doesn't mean that they're both doing it, right? It's uh, one group is doing something to another group. Uh, they're killing one another. So, that's not the same as submitting to one another, but um, it gives, gives you the idea from a grammar standpoint. Okay, that was helpful. Keep it. If it wasn't, trash it. All right? So, my point is this, in the Bible, and, and we'll, just, we'll stay with the Bible's literature, okay? It's, it's, not, it's one person or group submitting to another group. Jesus, for example, as a child, submits to his parents, Luke 2.51. Demons submit to the disciples in Luke 10. It's not mutual. Christians submit to governing authorities, Romans 13. Christians submit to church leadership, 1 Corinthians 16. Slaves submit to masters, Titus 2.9. And, I mean, we could go on and on, and there's, you're not going to find mutual submission. Like, it's one group to another group. So what does Paul mean here? Well, the rest of the paragraph is going to tell us, Right? Context is so important. Certain people, according to God's good design, submit to other people. Wives, Paul's going to say, submit to their husbands in verses 22 through 24. Children, if you go on, are going to obey their parents, which is almost synonymous with submit to. They're going to obey their parents, chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, and then slaves are to obey their masters, chapter 6, 5 through 8. 
And the other groups, the husbands, the parents, and the masters, they're all going to receive equally challenging instructions that relate to their positions of God-given leadership and authority. So it's not that they're off the hook, and Paul's just going to hammer the, the group that has to come underneath. He starts with that group, but then he, he will go out and give equally challenging and glorious, really, commands to the other, other groups. So, why am I bringing all this out? Because I want you to see that how husbands and wives relate to each other, according to Paul, put God's glory on display in the church. It's flowing out of verse 18, which is being filled with the Spirit. It's the very evidence, in other words, that the Spirit is involved in the marriages of your church or not involved in the marriages of your church. What Paul's going to command is the path for flourishing, for the fullness of the Spirit in and through the families of the church. It's the position, in other words, for maximal blessing. So it's really important okay, to see those connections as we're moving into this, these commands. And it's, it's maximal blessing because through the power of Christ, get this, the curse is being reversed. There's a lot of things Paul could say in commands to husbands and wives. This isn't like a systematic treatment of the role of a wife in a marriage. He's only going to tell her one thing. And then he's going to pivot and he's going to essentially tell the husbands one thing. And guess what it directly corresponds to? The fall. Remember, back in Genesis 3.16, that this was foreshadowed. There would come a child of the woman who would bruise the head of the snake and bring about this reversal, this blessing in the place of curse, a restoration of the way God intended. And in the church we get to progressively live out that restoration, the fulfillment of that promise. Remember that after the fall, the Genesis says in, in, in chapter 3, verse 16, that, that sinful wives, as a result of the curse, wives will be tempted to control their husbands. That's what it means. Their desire will be for their husbands. It's a negative connotation in the context. Meaning, they're going to try to control their husbands, but their husbands will rule over them. Again, very negative in the context, meaning going to domineer. Another way of saying it is this. Wives are not going to submit to the leadership of their husbands. And husbands are not going to lead in self-sacrificing love. But guess what? Now that we've been redeemed by Christ and given His Spirit, guess what he's going to empower us to do? Reverse the curse. Flourish within God's created roles. Will it be hard? Yeah. The offspring of the snake will be after us as we're trying to do this. Like Genesis 3.16 said. But it is possible in and through Christ, as we're going to see. So, I'm calling tonight's message, Redeeming the Curse the longer subtitle, In the Faith-Filled Submission of Wives. 
redeeming the curse or reversing the curse in the faith-filled submission of wives. And we're going we're gonna to approach this tonight uh, in just sort of five questions. Five questions about the, a wife's role of submission, because we got lots of questions, right, about this role. And it might not answer them all, but at least gets us going. And it may evoke some other questions that, that you have. And if you have those questions as we're going, write them down. And if we don't get the chance to talk tonight, I want to do a Q&A on Sunday uh, in our Sunday school class. So let's just like have a free-for-all. You can disagree with me and we'll go to the scriptures, okay? All right, so five questions about submission, the wife's role in submission. So as we're just leading into this thing, even for the most godly of wives, they will all admit that submission is hard. Surprise. (laughs) Well, why is that? Well, it cuts against the grain of the flesh, for one. And it really cuts against the grain when we have to submit to sinful, foolish leadership. Hey, why are you you girls laughing? Okay, just kidding. Mary's not here, so she would amen. With grace, in submission. Since Christian husbands still sin, surprise, that makes us at times uh, very sinful and foolish leaders. And difficult for our wives to arrange themselves under that kind of foolishness. And beyond the fact that wives have a hard time submitting to foolish husbands, we've all seen the widespread abuses of authority that have come from foolish husbands, right? This command for wives to submit has been cruelly applied even among Christians, in Christian circles, in the name of obeying the Bible. So, the problem's compounded, okay? Our Western 21st century ears don't like it, and we've seen its abuses. And the command for women to submit almost sounds subhuman. And the command itself tempts us toward all kinds of misconceptions. So that, that really leads us to our first question. What are some of those misconceptions about <clears throat> submission? What are they? Well, if you... Don't mind, now that we're in Ephesians, put your finger in Ephesians and turn back to Proverbs 31. I was just going to rattle off some of these misconceptions, but I thought, man, it'd be way better to just refute them with Proverbs 31. All right? So, I'm going to quickly list a few of these misconceptions and show you how the picture of this incredible wife blows up the misconceptions. Fair enough? You can think of this passage like um, maybe marital companionship on display from the wife's perspective or like with a view of like what the wife's doing. Companionship and you kind of like you're seeing the one side of it on her side. She is an incredible blessing to her husband and her family and she is fully in submission to the leadership of her husband. So just keep that in mind as we're reading this passage, or we're looking at this passage. She's fully in submission to the leadership of her husband. So here are a few misconceptions uh, about submission. Number one, submission is not being inferior to the husband. 
So we've, we've hammered this already, so I'll be brief. Both sexes are made in the image of God, like we saw last week. And in verse 10 of Proverbs 31, the excellent wife is described as a rare and precious jewel. Verse 10, a rare and precious jewel. And in fact, she's far more precious than jewels. She's valuable to her husband, in other words. Incredibly valuable. And notice in the next verse, he deeply trusts in her. Verse 11, it says that the heart of her husband trusts in her. Okay? That's deep, deep trust in the, in the inner man. Okay? You can't get any deeper than the heart in Hebrew. That's like the essence of the man trusts her. And it's all of him. And so this companionship, this is, this is confidant language. I mean, he's just, they're tight. And at the end of the passage, if you flip over in verse 28, she is blessed and is, is to be praised by her husband. Look at this. Uh, her children rise up and call her blessed, and her husband also, he praises her. Verse 29, many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful, beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord, command, is to be praised. This is not inferior language. He clearly admires her, and the author here says, rightly so. She's not inferior to him in the least, even though she is in submission to him. Make sense? All right. Proverbs 31, blowing it up. Submission is not, next, dying intellectually for the woman. It's not death to her intellect. She doesn't stop thinking because she's called to submit. In verse 26, the wife is described as full of wisdom and kind teaching. Look in verse 26. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. John Piper says it like this. He says, she didn't leave her brain at the altar when she got married. She is intellectual, she thinks critically, she meditates on the scripture, and she has deep spiritual insights. And this is why her husband trusts in her. And by application, she she seeks to counsel her husband in companionship. So she doesn't die intellectually, okay? That's That's not what submission is. You know, you hear it characterized like that. Submission is not, number three, abandoning efforts to influence your husband biblically. It is not abandoning your efforts to influence your husband biblically. Again, just piggyback, we already read verse 26. She's full of wisdom and teaching. If she wasn't seeking to make him more like her God, she would not be doing him good. Okay? And it says that's all she does back in verse 12. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. All she does is good. And she's full of wisdom and teaching. I think you can stitch these things together and see that she doesn't result to worldly manipulations to try to influence her husband, but she's gracious and wise in how she encourages and even, if necessary, confronts her husband in that companionship. 
So she doesn't abandon, being in submission does not mean abandoning your efforts to influence your husband biblically. It doesn't mean also never appealing to your husband. Or never expressing your honest opinion to him. Sometimes the submission gets presented as like you're just a doormat and just, he's just going to do it like, you're just allowing him to do whatever he wants. It's like, are you reading the Bible? Like this is, this is not what submission is. Sometimes we think that it's rebellious to disagree with a superior. It's not. It's not rebellious. I mean, it may, it may be in how you do it, but it's not rebellious to have a different thought as long as you disagree respectfully. And for a wife, she can disagree and still bring herself under the authority of her husband. She can do that. And to, to, uh, to think about submission as like, okay, I can't say anything to my husband, or I can't express a contrary view, that would actually be causing the husband to sin. Hear me out. 1 Peter 3, I am commanded as a husband to understand my wife. To live with her in an understanding way as a, as a weaker vessel. First Peter 3. That means I need to understand her desires, what she really thinks, her weaknesses, her strengths, her burdens, which implies she has got to be honest with me. Even if it's not what I want to hear in the moment, even if it's hard, even if it's a different opinion or something you know, completely contrary to what I think we should do. I need to know that if I'm going to dwell with her in an understanding way. And in fact, we're going to see next week, or whenever we get there, with the husbands, that it's our job to lay our lives down for our wives. So it's going to look like me figuring out what's in her best interest and getting after it. Okay? That's what a biblical husband does. So we have to be able to speak honestly to one another, and she can appeal to her husband um, if she thinks he's going the wrong way, if he's in sin, if... She would just prefer him to make a different decision. Submission is not never appealing to your husband. Next. Submission is not being sinfully weak or fearful. Submission is not being sinfully weak or fearful. Proverbs 31.17 A a submissive wife is not some weakling cowering in fear over in the corner of the house. She's not super fragile, unable to handle the burdens of life. Listen to this woman here in Proverbs 31. She is strong. Verse 17. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She's a capable companion. She works hard. She is clothed with strength and dignity and laughs at the future, it says in verse 25. She is in... Submission to her husband's leadership, and she's laughing at the future. And she's strong, and her husband's not intimidated by her strength. It's a beautiful thing. So, submission is not being sinfully weak or fearful. And finally, last one being in submission is not never making decisions or exercising responsibility in the marriage. Even though we are submission and we think she's not going to do anything, that's not what this means. Submission is not never making a decision or exercising responsibility in the marriage. This woman is depicted in this proverb 
She sees, she sees needs in her household, and she initiates solutions for her family. Look in verse 13. She seeks wool and flax. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. She's like the ships of the merchant, and she brings her food from afar. She, so she, she sees needs. She initiates solutions for her family. She's a capable manager of others. Look in... Um, Verse 15, she rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. She kind of like the idea is she's sort of like setting things up so they can work. She considers new business opportunities for her family that would be profitable. Look in verse 16. She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. Again, she dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She takes initiative in being generous toward others in verse 20. She opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. And the culmination of all this is in verse 27. She looks well to the ways of her household. She looks well to them. Is the husband in charge of the house? Yeah. Guess who's taking care of everything? This woman. She's doing a good job. And what's the result of this beautiful submission Verse 23 is cool if you know Hebrew poetry because verse 23 is the middle of this poem. And it all culminates to the middle of the poem. And that's the climax. And that's the way they did it in a lot of Hebrew ancient literature. Uh, the climax would be in the middle. And it's really out of place. So she's like talking about the, uh, the wife, 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 makes the bed, coverings for herself, verse 22, her clothing's fine land. And then it's like, her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. Now back to the wife. She makes linen garments, sells them. She lives in sashes, emergency, strength, dignity, and clothing. It's just like woman, 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 and then phew, something about a husband right in the middle, and then back to the woman. So, like, why all of a sudden? So he's sitting in the gates. Like, what's going on? Is he like a deadbeat or no? He's not. What does that mean? Okay, her husband is the king. And he sits in the gates to reign with the other elders of the city. And his reputation is enhanced by the excellence of his wife. Remember the mission of marriage from last week? This is complementary dominion. And I love the way Proverbs ends because it accentuates the wife. And it shows how significant she is to the wisdom of her husband, his reputation in the city of Israel, and the wisdom that he brings and the well-being of his reign as he's sitting in the gates. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. His reputation for wisdom as a king was well known because of the incredible blessing his wife brought to him. So, uh, those are some misconceptions, so don't fall prey to them, okay? Submission's a glorious thing. So what is it? All right, if it's not those things, then what actually is biblical submission? It's our second question. Well, okay, you ready for this? This is super complicated. 
Submission means to voluntarily arrange yourself under the leadership of another. It's a cool way to say it. Voluntarily arrange yourself under the leadership of another. And it happens in a lot of spheres, not just in marriage. If you've worked a job, you know what I'm talking about. You arrange yourself under the authority of another. Sometimes a foolish another. If you're a citizen, you know where I'm going. We arrange ourselves under the leadership of others, right? And that's complicated because there's lots of magistrates. There's not just one, okay? So we've got to arrange ourselves. We've got to think through that, okay? But either way, we have to bring ourselves into submission to those we disagree with. The church brings itself into submission to the elders of the church. Okay? We're, we're also fallen individuals. So there's lots of these opportunities. It's not just in the home. So it's the voluntary arrangement of yourself underneath the leadership of another. John Piper puts it this way. He says, Submission is the defined calling of a wife to honor and affirm her husband's leadership and so to help uh, and so, help to carry it through according to her gifts. I like that. It's helpful. Piper's a wordsmith. He's good at defining things. Notice that it's a calling. I think that's helpful. It's a calling. Meaning that um, it's designed by God to, to work in the way that he's, in, he's telling you to do things. He's, he's called you to it. It's of him. If you're a wife... And he says you honor and affirm the leadership of your husband, meaning that you seek it out. You try to follow him the best you can. You, you try to understand him uh, and the direction that he's taking and why he's taking that direction. You seek to get behind him and influence him and affirm him in that direction. You work against, then, the temptations to usurp his authority. You try to repent of attempts to manipulate him to get your way, to badger him and guilt trip him into doing things that you want him to do. You don't try to control him for your own end's sake. You're patient with him as he fails, even in his leadership attempts. That's this idea of, of honoring and affirming her husband's leadership. And then finally, you help him carry out his tasks. And that's really the, if you could like all caps that part, that's the really important part. This, it's submission, on, like you're arranging yourself to help him. It's not just like submit. It's submission unto being a help. You help him carry out the Great Commission, the task that the Lord has called him and you to. You use your God-given abilities to complement his weaknesses, to shore up his shortcomings, to help him in the advance of the mission that God has called him to. Now, there is like a lot more we could say about this from a practical standpoint. But most of you are not married. So when you get married, we'll talk practicalities, right? So for right now... Just, I want to set the categories for you, okay? So let's just keep going. Ask our third question. Who do, um, who do wives actually submit to? You think, what are we, like first grade? We know the answer to this. Well, even though it's obvious, Paul's specific here. Uh, if you flip back, okay, from... I didn't follow my own advice. I didn't keep my finger there. All right. Back to Ephesians. Who do wives submit to? Paul says, wives submit to their own husbands. Verse 22, wives submit to your own husbands. So, 
I think this point, the reason I included this is like the, the duh question, is what it's not saying, what he's not saying. He's not telling women to submit to all men in general. He's very specific. Submit to your own husbands. The call here is for a wife to voluntarily arrange herself under one man, and that is her husband. Now, this is important for a couple reasons. First, ladies, this implies that there's a slight distinction between what I call womanhood and wifehood. We talk about this in premarital. Womanhood, in general, and wifehood. There's a slight distinction. They're not the same. Most of you ladies in here are single, so you're not required to submit to a particular man. Not a requirement to you. I mean, we're always required to submit to Christ. We know that. We're always required to submit to our church leaders, who are men. We understand that. But that's different in the sense of a marriage relationship. Obviously, we're going to talk about this. In some cases, you're, 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 you need to submit to your parents, and I know you're in the, the tweener years where you're trying to... There's some, there's some difficulties there, and am I adult, am I not? Do I submit? How far? Do I honor? Honor, submit, what's the difference? So we'll talk about all that later, okay? But for now, you're going to submit to your parents. But you're not submitting to other dudes in the church, Okay? That's not happening. So anybody that tells you to start practicing that now is wrong. Don't do that. It's weird. (laughs) But, when you decide to get married, you assume a brand new role as a helper. God's going to hold you accountable. That means that you're agreeing before the Lord to voluntarily arrange yourself under the leadership of the man you're choosing to marry. Which means, I'm just going to get black and white here, you are giving up the freedom that you had as a single lady and you're binding yourself now to help the mission of your husband. I'm trying to get as explicit as I can here. That means that everything you do is now filtered through what is best for your husband and eventually, Lord willing, your children if he grants them to you. In other words... Your calling, whatever you think that may be, your career, vocationally, whatever else you may have had in your mind as a single person has to be reevaluated in light of what is best for your husband and your family. That's wifehood, not womanhood. As a woman, you are free. And in Western society, you're, you got better odds than I do, Okay? In some, in some ways, to, to flourish. We're just talking about in the world, okay? But if you choose to be married, you're giving that up in the sense of you don't have to necessarily trash it, but you're, you're, you, you have to put it on the altar and say, what is best for my husband and what is best for my family? That may look like working, outside the home, but it may not. That all has to be on the table. In other words, you're not to expect your husband to cater to all your career and educational aspirations and to arrange his life and calling in order to fulfill what you perceive yours to be. That would be in violation of this clear teaching here. doesn't mean you can't weigh in and kind of think through things together, But your calling now, according to God, is to help Him. 
however that he and you together, but he ultimately deems is best. Also, let me spell something else out. Okay, this <laughs> may be obvious, but let's go ahead and say it. This is not applicable to boyfriends and girlfriends. Okay? Ladies, you are not required to submit to him until you are married to him. Now, caveat, if you're dating a dude, you should definitely be asking, is this someone I want to voluntarily arrange myself under? You got to ask that question. Will he lead me in imitation of Christ? And if you have doubts, you better get those resolved. And you better get them resolved before you get married. So, dating, got that. Those of you who are engaged, you're still not married yet, but the commitment has increased substantially. Okay? So, it's, it's generally good, the counsel we give is generally good for a woman to look to the leadership of her fiancé. All the while, kind of holding it loosely until God's sovereign will is made known in the marriage, right? Um, on that day when covenants are exchanged. Until you're married, it's not final, but I think it's, it's definitely it's heading in that trajectory um, unless something catastrophic happens. So, who do wives submit to? Their own husbands. Alright, pretty clear. Number four, how are the wives supposed to submit? Okay? How are they supposed to submit? Now, it's very interesting how Paul answers this question. Uh, he gives us two ways. They're connected, but there's two ways. Initially, he tells the wives to submit to their husbands as they would submit to the Lord. Whoa. Um, Submit to their husbands as they would submit to the Lord. And I would sum this up. I think what he's getting at is that they should submit reverently. I'm not talking about worshiping your husband. Okay? Um, But I would describe this as a reverent... Submission, because he, he just got done saying, remember back in verse 21, submitting to one another, which he's fleshing that out now for us, submitting to one another out of or from reverence for Christ. So then now, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Right? How do you submit to the Lord? Out of reverence, right? Fear You fear him. Paul tells the church to submit to one another out of this reverence for Christ and, and carried over to the wives here. It means that her worship of Christ compels her to submit to her fallen husband. Christ, her Lord, is issuing this gracious command. And this implies that He's going to be with her to help her. He's going to be with her to protect her. He's going to be with her to bless her and cause her to flourish in this relationship. And this means then that as the wife submits to her husband, she's ultimately submitting to Christ. She sees Christ standing behind her husband. She sees Christ mysteriously controlling her husband. Even his weak and sinful moments are not outside of Christ's control. And she knows 
that his lackluster leadership will be used by her Lord for her good. So guess what? She is freed in her heart from fear. She's freed from manipulating him and trying to control him and badgering him and from reacting to him with anger or on the other side with despair. He's never going to change. She's freed from all that. And it's untethered to her husband because she's submitting ultimately out of reverence for Christ as unto the Lord or as, as she would to the Lord. And it's as though, super interesting, I've never seen this before, it's as though her reverence for Christ then spills over into a reverence for her husband because her, her husband has ultimately been appointed by Christ. She recognizes that. Notice, notice, skip down in the, this paragraph to verse 33. He, he talks to the wife and tells her to submit. And then he talks to the husbands and he hammers them, tells them to die. And then he comes in verse 33 and he sort of summarizes everything together. And he says, however, let each one of you love his wife as himself and, key in, let the wife see that she, here's the word, fears her husband. It's the same word, reverence for Christ fear of Christ in verse 21. See that she fears, or in this case, ESV translates it, respects, I think it's good, that she respects her husband. So it's as though her reverence for Christ is spilling over into a reverence for her husband. And this, this reverence for her husband is practical. She honors him in the way that she talks to him and about him to other people. It doesn't matter if he's worthy of it or not. She appeals to him rather than making demands of him. That's honoring. She, she works at bringing her attitude in line. She, she humbles herself and confesses her sin toward him. This is what Paul's getting at. At the end of this paragraph, when he, when he calls the wives to respect their husbands. Respect them. Out of reverence for Christ. So, they're to submit reverently, and they're to, res, they're to submit comprehensively. That's awkward. Can't make this stuff up. I'm a dude teaching this stuff, okay? Um, but this is what the text says. We've got to go with it. Look in verse 24. Paul says, Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Paul is essentially saying that there are no categories that a wife can operate in and like absolute independence from her husband. As a wife, she's got to come under his leadership in all of life. She can't like compartmentalize and say, that's my area. You have no jurisdiction in that area, husband. Now again, this is impossible to do for the ladies unless you realize that Christ is in control of your marriage. And Christ works in and through flawed husbands for your flourishing. It's impossible to do this. Now, this is not telling the husbands that they have ultimate authority and do whatever they want. That's not what he's saying. He's going to say the opposite of that when he, when he deals with the husbands. He's not commanding the husbands to subdue their wives and make them submit to them in everything. That's not what he's saying. This is a command of the wives to submit voluntarily in everything. Now, 
Now this is, like we said earlier, is, is no, we're not saying that women have no responsibility or that husbands are, are, are called to micromanage. It's not the case. Women are incredible and sometimes they even exceed the competency of their husbands. The woman of Proverbs 31, we saw, had incredible responsibility and freedom within the marriage. But it was all done for the benefit of her husband and family. And that's the idea here. You can't have your, your career floating out there if your husband thinks it's a detriment to your family life. All of it has to come under his leadership. That's the idea. So, do you talk things through together? Yeah. Yeah, you do. A lot. Okay? Do you raise issues and concerns? Yes. And you should. Just do it in a way where you realize that everything is under the leadership of your husband. That's the idea. Everything's kind of under his leadership. Now, that (laughs) on the flip side of that, for the husband... You're not like, it's all mine. Because guess what? God is going to hold me accountable for all of it in a unique way. He will not hold Mary accountable for. Think about it. Adam, where are you? You got called out first. Adam, I need to see you. Man, the woman step aside. I need to deal with him. That's weighty. All right? So, there's a lot more we could say on this. Man. Uh, but, just trying to get categories. All right, quickly, let's look at our final question. Incredibly important question, and a good one to end on. Why are wives to submit? Now, we've been hinting around at this the whole time, but Paul gives a direct answer to this in verse 23. Okay, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Why? For, here's the reason, the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. So there's the reason. The husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now this is, this is interesting. Paul says that wives are to submit, here's how I would summarize it, which is, is kind of long, Because this supports the God-created structure and, as a result, well, I should say will result, this will result in her maximal benefit. Because this supports the God-created structure, i.e., and brings Him glory, and it's going to result in her maximal benefit. That's what verse 23, I think, is, is saying. Paul says here that the husband is the head of the relationship. She's to submit because he's the head. Just like, then he goes on to say, Christ is the head of the relationship with the church. But what does he mean by head? Egalitarians will say it just means source. It's just the source. It doesn't really have any bearing on authority. Again, they're wrong. Um, (laughs) This is a metaphor in the Bible, and in Ephesians in particular, or authority. Uh, that's what it means. Christ is the head of all things, Ephesians 1.22. doesn't mean he's the source. It means he's in authority over everything. Like, every, everybody answers to Jesus. It's the idea. Okay? He's the authority. And it's explicit here. He's the head of the church. And he's, that's compared to the husband. Okay? So the husband is the authority. Shouldn't shirk away from that. He's the leader in the marriage. 
And Paul's point is that this is the man's definitive God-given role. Okay? Men, whether you feel like it or not, whether you're competent in it or not, whether you're good at it or not, this is your role, and you will be held accountable by Almighty God for your leadership, whether good or bad. So, let's get after it, right? Man is the head. But notice what Paul goes on to say in this phrase. The wife is to submit to her husband because he's the head, yes, just like Christ is the head of the church. But then Paul goes on to keep describing Christ. He says his body and is himself its savior. So that puzzled me this week. I was thinking about it. Why do you have that phrase? He could have just said to the wives, submit to your husbands because he's the head, just like Christ is the head of the church. Period. Seems to make the point to me. You know, I'm like, okay, keep going. Economy of words, right? In your English classes. You didn't need to say that. This is inspired scripture. So, we always bring ourselves under it and ask, why did he say that? Well, I think he's showing that the church submits to Christ and is benefited. The church submits to Christ and is benefited. We get the benefits of his saving and sanctifying grace. The work of his atonement. He's the savior of the body. And Paul's going to pivot and then build out the role of the husband in imitation of Jesus next week, or whenever we get there. I keep saying that, because I might do another message on on wives, okay? Just to kind of pan out. Still TBD. So I think Paul's hinting at the fact that as wives submit to their husbands as the rightful head, that this will result in maximal blessing for them, just like it results in maximal blessing for the church, in salvation. He's not saying that we save our wives. He's just saying there's going to result maximal blessing for them. I think he's implying that. Let me just put it that way. The wife will maximally benefit and flourish, not as she lives for herself, not as she acts independently in the marriage, but as she comes up under the leadership of her husband to help him. But how, you say? That That doesn't seem right. Well, for a Christian husband, just take, take my word for it, there's nothing that spurs me on to lead like Christ leads than Mary's humble and gentle submission. Nothing like it. In fact, when, when I am a moron, and she, which I am, she, and she comes up graciously underneath my moronic leadership, it's like a, a, a Nabal and uh, Abigail moment. Look that up later. I'll give you some good laughs. Hopefully I don't die. When, Mary, when she comes up under my leadership, she often exposes my very lack of leadership. And it causes me to work even harder to be a faithful leader. Right? When she follows me in a direction that I know is hard for her to follow, <laughs> what does that do to me? It's like, am I sure about this? You know, like, she disagrees, 
And I'm about to move forward. It's our, I better know what I'm doing. At least I'm going to lay it on the line and trust God and say, follow me, Mary, as I follow Christ. It makes me think through the wisdom of a decision. I know she's putting herself under my care and I want to be faithful in that care. Her submission engenders my complete trust because it proves that she desires to be faithful to Christ and faithful to me as her husband. So in a Christian marriage, her submission works out in more blessing, not just for me, but in for her as she's shaping me into a better leader by her quiet, humble attitude. Not that she never speaks, but just by that, that willing submission to, to get behind me and help me and trust me and the leadership that I'm offering to our family. It's incredible. But let's say that I was married to an unbeliever, or that I was an unbeliever, she's married to me. Why should she submit then? Well, 1 Peter 3 says that her gracious attitude, her faith in God, and her sweet and gentle disposition toward me as an unbeliever is a powerful evangelistic tool in the hand of the Lord. Peter even says that me as an unbeliever will likely be won without a word by the submissive conduct of my believing wife. It's not a guarantee. I mean, think about that. An apostle saying, I mean, it's hyperbole, but he's saying, he's going to be converted without you even talking to him. It's like, the gospel converts people. It's not, it's not her behavior. That converts, but he, he's being so over the top there to say he's, he'll be won without a word. Your life will be such compelling evidence of the reality of God that He will come to faith in Christ through your submissive attitude. It's incredible. But beyond all this, okay, you know what? When a woman trusts in her God and she submits to her flawed and sinful husband, she is so pleasing to her Savior. She is so radiant to Him, so full of the glory of Christ. He will pour out the contentment, even if hardship comes. He will pour out joy, peace, and other fruits of the Spirit, even in the midst of hostility, like in a 1 Peter 3 context. He will bless her spiritually, and even if her blessing seems small in this life, her obedience to Him will reap unfathomable rewards in the coming kingdom when her King returns. And that's what this woman is living for. She's living for the expansion of God's kingdom. She's living for that day when the king's coming back. And she wants her marriage, insofar as she's responsible, to be an aroma to the Lord that's pleasing to Him because it glorifies Him. So, there we have it. Some five questions. Paul's instructions to wives about submission. So, by the power of Christ, wives are able to reverse the curse and to live in harmonious and submissive relationships with their husbands. And to bring it full circle, okay, this sweet and faith-filled submission to husbands is a clear sign that the Spirit is filling a family and a church. It's a clear sign. Say it differently. For a wife to claim to be Spirit-filled, or filled with the Spirit, for her to claim that and yet refuse to submit to her husband is deception. She's not spirit-filled. She was. She would be working on a submissive attitude. Christ promises the blessing of the Spirit as both husbands and wives function together in their creative spheres. So ladies, as you consider marriage, as you date and are engaged, 
Let this sweet and glorious view of submission permeate your hearts and your minds. And like I said, if you have more questions, we'll talk through them. Uh, i got a Q&A coming uh, on Sunday. We can talk about that. Um, but let me end with a quick word to the guys. Men, do you feel the weight of this? You feel that? If a woman is obedient to Christ, she arranges herself underneath your leadership. So this begs the question, how will you lead? How will you lead her? Will you benefit her? Or will you lead her into sin? Will you help her grow in Christ? Or are you going to hinder her growth in Christ? Will her submission to you be easy? Because you act like Christ? Or will it be a tremendous burden for her because you are immature and obstinate? Let these instructions to the wives humble you men to cause you to run to Christ, to abandon your own wisdom and to seek wisdom exclusively from Him and His Word. Let it drive you to find some faithful men and sort of get in line behind them and imitate them. And Christ will help you lead. Like He's committed to this. He's committed to seeing this as a reality in the church. More than you are. Remember, he can do far more abundantly than you can ever ask or think, Ephesians 3. So he's committed to it. And he's going to even override your weaknesses in this area if you stay humble and dependent on him. And he'll use you, as we'll see next, next time, to maximally benefit your wife as you learn to lay your life down for her. So let's strive to that end together. We're going to fail. But uh, so you guys date, get engaged, get married, we get to see the benefits of that. If you don't, that is fine. Remember our mission of marriage from two weeks or last week? It's not dependent on you getting married. The mission is not dependent on your marriage. You can fulfill it equally in singleness. And according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, better in singleness. So, uh, I'm sure that raises questions right now at the end of my message. So, we'll go ahead and finish. Lord, thank you for uh, this sweet truth. We pray that um, you would cause it to be so appealing to us um, and that we would, as we, as we embark in marriage, I know these are young folks, a lot of them are single, um, but Lord, if this, is, if this is a gift that you give to them, I pray that uh, they would learn to walk in these, these realities. Lord, I know we're just setting the context today um, for these things, and if this is new for folks, Lord, I pray that you help them um, just not cast it away, but wrestle with these issues. And Lord, for these that are that are saying, "Yeah, like I get this. I just I want to be married, but there's nobody on the radar." Lord, I pray that you would give them um, contentment, help them to trust in you, and press in here. Um, and Lord, I pray that uh, if folks have desires to be married, that they wouldn't uh, wait around; that they would just begin to get to know each other, and uh, would just experience this this blessing of marriage, and we ask it all in Christ's name. Amen.